Well, let's, again, let's pray before we open together the Word of God that He would have His way with us. Father, Your ways are good and perfect because You are good and perfect, and that will never change, nor do we want it to. Sometimes we do, though, we admit, we wish things would be different. We wish Your ways would be sometimes less severe or more... um, in accordance with our feelings and desires. But that's where trust comes in. And your word has given us abundant reasons to trust you. Your life, Lord Jesus, has given us abundant reasons to know that you love us. And so we as a people want to express not only our love for you, but our trust in you, because we know in that will be the basis of our joy both now and forever. And so we ask you to instruct us about this today and to have your way with us. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. You know, almost everything that we know changes. The scientific word for this is entropy. Entropy is the inescapable and steady decay and increasing disorder of all things in the universe unless there is intervention. So entropy is automatic. It is inevitable. If you don't water a plant, it dies. If you don't touch and care for a baby, which the bakers brought here this morning, I know you guys are all going to be like, ooh, let me hold that baby. So uh, if you were to leave that baby alone, just give it food, you know what happens? That baby gets ill, doesn't thrive, and in some cases they even die. If you don't practice music, athletics, even your manners, right? Well, you'll never gain in proficiency in them. And any competency that you may have in them, it's just going to slowly be lost. Entropy is one of the many consequences of the fall. Paul says that God subjected all of creation to futility. And that one day creation, it will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. So until that day, entropy is the way of the world. You know, this same principle even applies to us spiritually in the Christian life. Here's what Jesus said to believers in Revelations 2. I have this against you. You have left your first love. You can lose your first love for Christ in a variety of ways, can't you, Christian? Right? Unwillingness to repent of secret sins not prioritizing daily communion with the Lord, disinterest in prayer, carelessness towards sin, lack of concern for the loss, a loss of urgency in living for God. Allowing any of these types of behaviors into your life, it will have a detrimental impact on your relationship with your Savior. Unless you are intentional in your fight against the desires of your sinful nature, the increasing ungodly influences that are in the world, spiritual entropy will be inevitable. Your love for Christ will begin to steadily decay. Pursuit of Christ in our sinful world, with all that we have to deal with in terms of internally in our sinful natures, as well as externally in, in a fallen world, It's like swimming against the current in a river. 
What happens if you stop swimming? You go the opposite direction that you were going. You start going the direction of the current. See, that is all it takes to experience spiritual entropy. You just stop swimming. You just stop pursuing Christ. In any one of the ways that I mentioned here, or maybe others, you stop pursuing Christ in the way that Scripture tells you to, and your fellowship with Christ will suffer. It will decay. It is a certain recipe for regret and for misery in your walk with God. So we're living in a world subjected by God to futility that has suffered incessantly ever since the fall of man from the degrading, decaying, disordering effects of entropy. And as Christians, we're living in this fallen world and with these fallen natures. And therefore, we have to be all the more diligent to maintain a close, personal walk with the Lord. Else, our relationship with Christ, it's going to suffer from the degrading, decaying, disordering effects of spiritual entropy. There is no part of God's creation that is unchangeable. But while this truth can be difficult, even discouraging to live in light of, I have good news for you this morning. There is one quality about your God that separates him as the creator from even the highest of his creations. See, what is, while it is true that, that no part of God's Creation is unchangeable. God never changes. God says in Malachi 3.6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. And because God never changes, the, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. Psalm 33.11. And this truth that God never changes, which is, which is uh, in theology, it's the doctrine of God's immutability. It is closely linked to the equally amazing truth that he is eternal. And both of these truths about God, they should leave us in awestruck wonder since they are, they are so far beyond our ability to comprehend. But here is what these truths about our glorious God should also do. It should bring you joy. And it should bring you comfort. It should bring you rest as we labor to live our lives in an ever-changing, increasingly sinful world. No sin will ever diminish His excellencies. No situation will ever nullify his promises. And with this knowledge, every believer here, can, we can breathe a massive sigh of relief. Right? If you are in Christ Jesus, no matter what you may be going through, you are as secure in your Savior as God is unchanging. He alone is the rock of salvation that will never be moved. And in the face of what Ever storm you may face in life, you can say, along with David in Psalm 62, He 
only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be moved. And so may we point others to him through his word with a confidence that is based not in our abilities, not in our strength, not in our wisdom, but in his glorious, eternal, unchanging splendor. So this sermon is a part of a series about our joy in the glorious Christ. We'll have three sermons apiece on our joy in the person, the work, and the word of Christ. Pat started us off last week talking about joy in the incarnate one. And this morning I want to speak to you about our joy in the eternal, unchanging Christ. The eternal, unchanging one. And it's my hope to show that because Christ is eternal and unchanging, he is the eternal and unchanging source of joy for all who trust in him. Let me say that again. Because Christ is eternal and unchanging, he is the eternal and unchanging source of joy for all who trust in him. I want to show you three truths about the glorious person of Christ this morning and how it connects to our joy. First, he is, was, and always will be. Second, he is, was, and always will be the same. And third, as a result of this, joy is, was, and always will be found in him. And so we are building up to this glorious truth of our our joy in the eternal and unchanging Christ. And so we'll start by seeing first that Christ is, was, and always will be. So in speaking about God's eternality, there's perhaps no better starting place than God's revelation of himself to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, Those of you who know the story of Moses, they know how... He had, to some degree, been aware of the true God, even for his whole life, right? He'd been born into a godly family. Even so, when God said that he would send Moses to Egypt and through him to deliver the people of Israel, Moses responded to God by saying in Exodus chapter 3, he said, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, Well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God, you remember how God responded to Moses, right? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So I am who I am. This name is is linked with the ancient name for God, Jehovah. But it's more than just like a proper name, of course. It is a descriptive name. And it shows him to be the one who is entirely self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal. And this name, it reveals what God is in himself. There are attributes of God that we as his creatures, we share. We've been made in his image. For example, God is love. And by his grace, we also love. God is also wise. 
By his grace, we possess a measure of wisdom, and we can grow in wisdom. God is powerful, and so we too are powerful, albeit in a far more limited sense. But when it comes to God's self-existence, his self-sufficiency, his eternality, well, God alone, alone possesses those attributes. He exists in and of himself, while we We only exist in him. He is entirely self-sufficient while we are entirely dependent upon him. He is eternal. While we, well, we had a beginning. And it's this third quality of eternality that, that concerns us this morning. For God to say of himself, I am who I am. It's to speak of himself as everlasting as eternal. And simply put, God is, was, and always will be. And this attribute of God is, is all over the scriptures. And we're not going to go into all that the scriptures say, but let's take a couple. In Genesis 21, for example, Abraham is the one who calls God the everlasting God. In Psalm 90, Moses, again, this phrase was spoken to Moses. Well, here's what God or Moses said of God in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So as human beings, you know, we measure we measure everything in time, which makes it very hard for us as human beings, right? To conceive of something that had no beginning, but has always been and will continue on forever. But what I want you to see this morning is that the Bible does not try to prove God's existence, nor does the Bible try to prove his eternality. It just simply begins with the statement, in the beginning, God Indicating that at the beginning of recorded time, God already was in existence. So so from duration stretching backward without limit to duration stretching forward without end from eternal ages to eternal ages, God was and is forever. Now, while all this certainly applies to God. Well, does it apply to Christ? And the answer is that it is it most definitely applies to Christ. The doctrine of the eternality of the son of God is perhaps the most important doctrine of Christology as a whole, because if Christ is not eternal. Then he's a creature who came to exist in time and he lacks the quality of eternity which, as we've just seen very briefly, that characterizes God himself. See, if Christ is not eternal, then Christ is not God. And if Christ is not God, then he couldn't have paid for our sins, which means that you and I, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. But if Christ is eternal, then he is also self-existent. He is also self-sufficient. He is God himself. Let's take a few minutes to just look at the evidence from the Bible as to the eternality of Christ. So if we begin in the Old Testament, look at Micah 5.2. I'll give you to the count of five to find the book. 
of Micah. I have it in my notes, so I've already beaten you. But I'll try to get there. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. I really do have it. I did turn to it. Did you get there? Micah 5, verse 2. Let me read it to you. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The terms in this verse, they convey the story. The strongest assertion of infinite duration, which the Hebrew language is essentially capable. So Micah is expressing with the strongest language that he has able to him as a Hebrew speaking man, that this ruler who we know to be the Christ, he existed from all of eternity. We also have Isaiah nine, verse six. You're likely familiar with both Micah 5.2 and Isaiah 9.6 as verses that you hear around Christmas time, right? Because they speak of Christ's birth. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And so this this mighty and majestic person that Isaiah describes, he will first of all be a child born. So here we see his his humiliation. He will be fully human, but he is also a son given. He's the son of God. He is the son of God given. The father gave his son. Why? So that we could have life. The giving of the Son is essential to our salvation. Salvation is contained in the person of Jesus Christ. This person, he will be a mighty ruler for the government, it says, will rest on his shoulders. His shoulders will be broad enough. Broad enough to carry the weight of it all. And so in this way, Isaiah asserts the superiority, the grandeur of his government, because by his own power, Christ will rule. He will discharge his office. And Isaiah then, he describes him with these incredible names. These names describe his being, his character. They emphasize his majesty, his sufficiency. He's called the Wonderful Counselor. He's wonderful. It stresses his incomprehensibility, as in beyond wonder. No one knows the Son but the Father. And he's wonderful in all that he has done for his people. He's both sinless. He's the friend of sinners. He's infinitely wonderful. He's also a counselor. Why do we seek counselors? We need help. We need wisdom. You don't need to go anywhere else for counsel. You don't need to go to anyone else to solve your problems. That doesn't mean we don't seek counsel from one another. But the counsel you need comes ultimately from Christ. Everybody has their opinions, but only Christ has the wisdom you need. He has everything you need for life and for godliness. And so he's the source that you want to go to. And if you go to a source of wisdom that isn't giving you Christ's wisdom, be discerning. Be careful. It may not come from Christ. It may sound good to the ears, but it may not come from Christ. You have a wonderful counselor in Christ. He has absolute wisdom. He can comfort you. He can help you. He can overcome any problem you face. He's a wonderful and a sufficient counselor. 
He's also mighty God. This ruler who is coming is almighty God. Isaiah could not have said it any clearer in human language that the Messiah is God. He is God come in the flesh. He has all wisdom. He has all strength. He is mighty, which means that he has all power. He has all resources. And he uses these to reign and to rule and to help his people. He is mighty God. There is in Christ an abundance of protection for defending us, for defending our salvation. He's God and he shows himself mighty on our behalf. He's also called eternal father. Eternal means he has no beginning or end. He's eternal. And literally these two terms mean that Christ is the father of eternity. Christ is over the ages. He preserves their existence. And then he calls him finally Prince of Peace. He's the one who gives peace. He reconciles his people to God and he brings about peace. And peace also means blessing. It means happiness, calm, safety. That is what Christ brings. And he brings it into a tumultuous, chaotic life of a sinner like you and me. He brings his peace, not the world's peace, his peace. And without him, life is restless. It's miserable. And if we shift now to the the New Testament, look now at the beginning of John's gospel, chapter one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, how it begins. Remind yourself of how the Bible begins in the beginning God. Do you think there's any? Wow, John. You happen to choose the same three words to begin your gospel. Do you think there's any? Is that just coincidence? Because look at what he says. In the beginning was the word. The Bible begins in the beginning, God. John begins his gospel of the life of Christ in the beginning was the word. And that phrase in the beginning is it's absolute. And it refers to a point in time in eternity past beyond which it's it's not possible for us to go. Right. So stretch back your imagination as far as it will go. And you will find no point when the word was not. Was it implies Continual existence. The word didn't begin in the beginning. He already was. He already existed in the beginning. In the beginning already was the word. And the article the is actually it's absent there in the Greek. It it literally reads in beginning. In other words, in any beginning, any beginning that you can think of. Already was the word. And then, as you well know, John identifies who the word was. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. Who are we speaking about? We're speaking about Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God because he is God. He is eternal. The Bible begins in the beginning, God. John's gospel begins in the beginning, Christ. Same thing. Turn to John eight fifty eight. 
You're familiar with this, but as you're turning there, it says this is Jesus and he's speaking these words. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, and we know our, our ears should immediately peak, perk up whenever we hear those words. Truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, listen to me. I'm speaking something that is true that you need to know. And he says, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. We've heard those words before, haven't we? Jesus very emphatically stresses to the Jews. He's saying before Abraham was born, before he came into existence, I am. He doesn't say I was. He says I am. So Jesus was not only claiming to have existed before Abraham, who lived 2,000 years before Christ. He was claiming to be the very one who spoke to Moses. The eternal I am. The Jehovah. Jehovah of the Old Testament. And the proof that this was not just Jesus using inappropriate grammar. Didn't you mean I was Jesus? No, I didn't stutter. I am. And the proof that everybody who was Jewish that was present knew exactly what he was saying. They reached down for the biggest stone that they could carry so they could throw it at him and kill him for blasphemy. He was claiming equality with God himself. So Jesus takes to himself one of the most sacred of divine expressions and applies it to himself. He claimed to be the eternal I am. Look at Ephesians 1. Jump over to Ephesians 1. Here in Ephesians 1, this is the Apostle Paul. This is what he says in verse 4. He says, just as he, and he means the Father... Just as the Father chose us in Him, and there He means Christ. So we got two pronouns. We want to make sure we know what we're talking about. So let me read it this way. Just as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So this, it, these, this verse, it stresses that Christ existed before the foundation of the world. And John in his revelation records Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So Jesus is the beginning. All things exist because of him. And he is the first cause of all things. So these verses, they stress that Jesus Christ, he has existed from all eternity. And this means that he is equal with God. He deserves to be worshipped as God. Christ is, was, and always will be. Now closely linked to the eternality of Christ is the unchangeableness of God. And so it is not just that Christ is, was, and always will be. It is, secondly, Christ is, was, and always will be the same. The unchangeableness of God, His immutability, it means that God is always the same in His eternal being. Now man, on the other hand, is changeable as is true of all parts of God's creation. As I said earlier, it's what separates the Creator from everything that He created. The mutability, the mutability of man. It's due to the fact that we are fallen creatures. We are separated from God. The Bible speaks of the wicked as being like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. You've been out on a boat in a rough ocean or maybe even a rough lake. I mean, you're 
we call it rocking, right? You're moving all over the place because the waves are just constantly flowing. That's the wicked. That's a picture of the life of the wicked. Jude speaks of them as clouds without water, just carried along by winds. Calls them wandering stars. Stars aren't supposed to wander, but the wicked do. We saw this changing morality evidenced in the masses towards Jesus, right? They, he, Jesus comes into Jerusalem in one week and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. By the next week, what are they shouting? Away with him. Crucify him. So human nature cannot be relied on. But God can be relied on. Because secondly, while man uh, man is changeable, God, secondly, God cannot change. His nature is always the same. His will is unwavering. His purposes are certain. In the midst of a churning and decaying universe... God is the one fixed point for those who truly know him. Jesus calls God, the, he calls him the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James 1.17. God cannot change in his essential being. He is eternally perfect. He never differs from himself. It is because God is perfectly righteous that he cannot change, right? To change for the better, what does that imply? Well, God was never perfect in the first place. God never needs to improve in any aspect of who he is. To change for the worse, well, that would make him less than he was, becoming either sinful or imperfect. Now, don't don't mistake God's immutability that he is unchanging with him somehow being apathetic or removed or uncaring or unconcerned or unaffected. That view, that view does not come from the Bible. That comes from man. The Bible clearly portrays God as being moved, moved by our obedience, moved by our plight, Moved by our sin. And so it's true that God cannot change in his essential being, but it is also appropriate to say that God cannot change and God will not change. God will not change. That's the third point here. God will not change. He will not change and become something different, something unrecognizable. See, from the first chapter of Scripture, the Bible has been making the case to man for the dependability of God. Over and over, when God spoke, what what he said, it would happen. And it would happen. And it would happen. And it would happen without exception. Right? When he said, we can go back to the beginning, when he said, let there be light, there was light. When God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, well, suddenly there were beasts and there were cattle, there were creeping things. When God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, there's man from the dust. God needed no assistance in doing anything that he did. Psalm 33, verse 9, it simply says, he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Turn to Isaiah 46. Look at Isaiah 46. 
bring your eyes down to verse 9. Isaiah 46, verse 9. God revealing himself to us, right? He's speaking to you, so he wants you to know him. That's why he gave us the scriptures, so you can know him, so you can depend on him. And look at what he says. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. How? How is there no one like you? Declaring the end from the beginning. See, this is foreknowledge. He declares it. He knows it. He brings it about. He says, and from ancient times, things which have things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Whatever I delight to do, I do. That's why he's the happy God. He does whatever he pleases and praise God, he's good in his very nature. And so whatever he does, not only does he delight in it, but he does it for the delight of his people. No one can thwart him. No one can stop him. No one can change him because he will not be changed from doing all that he intends. In, it's in this statement. If I'm sorry, if in the statement your ears are hearing something like, well, that sounds like God is inflexible. God is inflexible. Well, I wouldn't say you're exactly wrong, but you are not hearing what you need to hear. God never overpromises. He never underdelivers. He will always do exactly as he promises. Why? Because it is impossible for God to lie, the scriptures tell us. God will keep his promises. He cannot do otherwise because of who he is. God cannot change. God will not change. And that is exactly what the Bible tells us is true of Christ. Hebrews 13.8. Look there. Let your eyes land on this verse again. You've heard it over. You've seen it on cards. You've, you've seen it on the Internet when you go to certain pages and stuff like this. Let your eyes be on this. Earmark this page. Highlight it. Underline it. Memorize it. Hide it in your heart. Hebrews 13.8. In fact, we don't do this very often, but let's say this together. Out loud together. Say it with me. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You've just spoken God's truth right back to you and to one another. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is, he was, and he always will be the same. And because this is true, saints, we can declare where joy is, was, and always will be found. Joy is found in Christ, the eternal, unchanging one. There's two things about God that will never change, which serve as the foundation of your joy in all seasons of life. His posture and his purposes, his posture and his purposes. First, God's posture will never change. And by which I mean his posture towards you. You've heard that expression before. His posture towards you will never change. See, in this world... People forget you. 
Even when you have worked hard, even when you have been extremely helpful, you've gone out of your way to serve them. People change their attitudes towards others as their own needs and circumstances dictate. And many times that means they can become, even though you have done all this for them, they can be unjust and unfair towards you. And I can say that personally. And I'm not thinking of times I've been mistreated by others. I'm thinking of times when I have done the mistreating. I have been guilty of selfishly using other people only to callously not care about their needs. Isn't that sad? But isn't that true of you and me? But not God. He's not like that. His attitude towards us now is the same as it was, extending all the way back to the endless ages of eternity past and will be extending on into the endless ages yet to come. The Father loves us to the end. And with God, there is no end. He loves us forever. We know this because Jesus, remember, he reveals the Father. He exegetes the Father. He explains the Father And in John 13, 1, this is what it says of Jesus, which means he's saying this about God, too. It says, now, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And he will love you to the end. Listen to A.W. Tozer about the comfort found in the immutability of God. He says, What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from Himself. In coming to Him at any time, we need not wonder whether we will find Him in a receptive mood. He is always receptive to misery and need, as well as to love and faith. He doesn't keep office hours. He doesn't set aside periods when He will see no one. Neither does He change His mind about anything. Today, this moment, He feels towards his creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. God never changes his moods or cools off in his affections or loses his enthusiasm. Is this not a source for great comfort and joy, Christian? While the world changes all around you in confusing unsettling ways while people you've trusted to be what uh, while people you've trusted failed to be what you needed them to be while that's going on all around you god remains the same towards you loving you with an everlasting love that began before time stretches out into forever a line that never ends If God changed as we change, if he decided one thing today, but another thing tomorrow, who could confide in him? Who could be encouraged by him? No one. No one. Because you never know when he's saying one thing, but going to do another. But God is always the same in who he is. He will always be good and wise and sovereign and loving. And he will always be your heavenly father. He will always be the source of your joy because his posture towards you will never change. And neither will his purposes. Because Christ is the eternal unchanging one, he is and always will be the source of joy because secondly, God's purposes will never change. 
God's purposes will never change. We often change our plans, don't we? And many times it's because we just can't see what's coming or uh, we simply lack the power, let's say, to bring our plans about. Good plan, just don't have the power to make things happen. Sometimes we realize, though, that our plans just weren't well thought out, right? We got to step back because going forward, just it just wouldn't be wise, wouldn't be good. Now, some of you know this about me, but maybe not all of you. But before I married Rosita, I was engaged. I planned to marry someone else. In fact, um, as I said, we... I'd even proposed, and and she had somewhat reluctantly accepted. However, there were plenty of red flags along the way, and I ignored them all. Uh, And these red flags were obvious to some others who were close to me in my life, but because of my stubbornness, because of my pride, I was just refusing to acknowledge them and see them. It wasn't anything sinful. It was mainly just a great deal of immaturity. I was young. 21. I was hard-headed. I wanted to prove I know what I'm doing. Right? How foolish. And yet, how common for a young man, you know, just barely into his 20s. It's common to be foolish and hard-headed and brash when you're in your 20s. And that was me, poster child. After a few months of being engaged, God brought me to my senses. He, he showed me, not like there's something wrong with her. That wasn't it. He showed me how I was being foolish to force something prematurely. And so, at that point... In life, with something so significant before me and finally seeing things the way others would have liked me have seen before I proposed, I changed my plans. They were poorly made by me. The fault and the foolishness were mine. And it was humbling. And I regret, Ted, and still to a certain degree regret, the putting this young lady through, you know, the humiliation of it all. And while I changed my plans, God never changed his. Proverbs 16, verse 9 tells us, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. See, even when I was trying hard to have my way, as foolish as I was, the Lord's good will prevailed over mine. And I praise God. And that's no disrespect to this, this uh, intended towards this other young lady. But, but God had someone else that he had fashioned to be the helper that I needed. Right? A year later and a lot humbler, God brought Rosita into my life. And another year and a half after that, we were married. And I'm sure that you can see the amazing impact that God has had on my life through her. Right? She is the way that God regularly checks my foolishness that still abounds. My hard-headedness and my pride. Oh, men, do you see your wife this way? She is your helper. Listen to her. 
God gave you to her for a reason. He fashioned her for you. How do you know that that's true? I've got all these troubles. Maybe I made a mistake. Here's how you know it's true, husband, that that is who God fashioned for you to sanctify you. This. It happened. God didn't stop you like he stopped me. He made her for you. Listen to her. And you know I mean this because it's not even Mother's Day. (laughs) So while we often change our plans for good or for ill, God is not like us in that way. Here's how Charles Hodge defined God. He said, quote, infinite in wisdom. There can be no error in And what he means here is in the conception of his plans. There can be no error in the conception of his plans because he's infinite in wisdom. And then he goes on to say, infinite in power. There can be no failure in their accomplishment. How can he say this? Because here's what Numbers 23, 19 says. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Oh, yeah, but I haven't seen you do what you've promised yet in my life, God. Uh, Do you still have breath? Are you still alive? Then God is not done and he has not failed you. Repenting means to revise one's plan of action, but God never repents in this way. His plans are made on the basis of his perfect knowledge and his perfect power sees to their accomplishment. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Isaiah 14, verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. See, God's declaring himself to you. Are you going to sit in judgment over him just because you can't see what he is and hasn't done? And you're in judge over him? You haven't been true to this. You haven't been true to this. In the love of Christ, I say, how dare you? He has declared who he is. His purposes will stand. His promises will never fail. And the longer you live, the more thankful you are that his purposes do prevail and not your own. There are far too many times where if my will had prevailed, I would not have the joy that God planned for me. And so I praise God his will prevails and cannot be changed. And because this is true, that means that secondly, God's purposes for Christ are unchanging. His purposes are to glorify him. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 2. For this reason also God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, the fruit of foolishness, you know what it tastes like? We could all raise our hand and say, we should say the same word, bitter. The fruit of foolishness is bitter. There will be no greater bitterness than the foolishness of resisting Christ's glory. Men do so now. They do it all the time. But the day is coming when Jesus will be confessed as Lord, even by those who would not have him as Lord in this life. 
every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Bible is not saying that every, every tongue is going to confess it with gratitude. This is the same word that speaks of acknowledging or confessing sin. And the Lord knows how reluctant we can be about confessing our own sins. So you can rebel against Christ's authority, against his glory. You can reject him in this life, but you will acknowledge him on that day. You will confess on that day that Jesus Christ is Lord, but it will not be with gladness. It will be as you are banished from his presence forever. Thus forsaking all joy forever. And so in love and for the sake of your present and eternal joy and well-being, I urge you to stop resisting Christ's lordship over your life. God will glorify Jesus Christ. He will um, and all who have received his gracious and merciful pardon. They will with humility and with gratitude say amen. And and you can enter into this joy and you can do so today if you will turn from your sinful rebellion and resistance to him and bow your knee to Christ and confess him as Lord. And he is merciful. He will pardon all who come to him in this repentant faith. Oh, but it, it is way understating the matter to say that he will pardon you. I mean, that we would all say, man, that's enough. That I've been pardoned, but that he doesn't stop there because he will bless you greatly. This joy is a supernatural joy that he gives to those who put their faith in him. The Apostle Peter encouraged some saints as they were suffering through persecution. Here's what he said to them. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. See, I can say this to you in Christ's name because not only are God's purposes for Christ unchanging, but God's purposes for you, Christian, are unchanging. See, his purpose is to make you into the image of his son and to bring you safely into his presence at the end of your time here on earth. And in the book of Hebrews, we can see the nature of God's promises. Turn to Hebrews 6. We can see the nature of God's promises to us in his promises to Abraham. Hebrews chapter 6. Follow along with me as I read verses 13 to 19. Hear what he says to you. For when God made the promise to Abraham, this is Hebrews 6.13. When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which... It is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters into the veil. See, God's purpose, it is to bring all of us into joy. 
Jesus tells us that he came not only to give us life, right? But he came to give it, to have it abundantly, he says. Yes, one day, one day, he will bring us into the full enjoyment of all that God intended life to be. But that joy that he's talking about, that abundant life that he's referring to, it's right now too. It's not just then, it's now. There's no doubt that we can go through times of joylessness. Right in the midst of his great trial, Job wished he'd never been born. You ever felt that way? You're not alone. In Psalm 55, it includes David's prayer that God would take him away to a place where he just wouldn't have to deal with reality. You ever feel that way? We all go through such times, such seasons in this life. But see, God gives you joy. And he gives it to his people as a gift. You know, did you know the very root word for joy in the Greek is grace? It's a gift. Joy is also the response of God's people for his gifts. And so joy comes when we are aware of God's unchanging grace. We appreciate his undeserved favor. Jesus was a man of sorrows, the scriptures say. And yet he was sustained in the sorrow that he encountered by a joy that was rooted in God. Jesus delighted in being a child of his father. He delighted in childlike dependence on his father. He delighted in receiving from his father and being known by his father and knowing his father and bringing others into a knowledge of his father. He was the embodiment of Psalm 16, where he says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. You will make known to me the path of life. Your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. How can we not listen to a man of such joy who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross? He's the one who tells us, rejoice and be glad your reward is great in heaven. But he's also the one who says, rejoice always. Jesus is no hypocrite when he tells us to rejoice. He's the man of joys drawing us into his own joy. He wants your joy to be full. He wants it to be full right now, today, not just one day in glory. He wants his joy to be your joy. He wants you to have his joy. The very joy of the Son of God himself. He wants to pour it into your soul. Listen to his prayer for his disciples before the cross. But now I come to you He's talking to his father. These things I have spoken in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. This is the joy of the Holy Spirit that Paul speaks in in 1 Thessalonians 1. It is experienced as you believe his words, as you trust his providence. You're struggling with joy? then I would say what you're also struggling with is trust. How can you have joy in someone that you really don't trust? He says it. 
but you don't believe it. And so you're struggling with joy. Through His Word and by His Spirit, you can taste Christ's own joy as you trust in His unchanging purposes for your life. So your world, Christian, it may be unstable. It may be changing, but not your God. And therefore, not your source of joy. Because Christ is eternal and unchanging. He is the eternal and unchanging source of joy for all who trust in him. Let's pray. These are your words, not mine. Let let your people forget any words that are mine and only cling to what is yours and what is true from your word. And if they'll do that, Father, if you'll give them that ability to to cling to you, then, oh, you are giving them the ability to be joyful in whatever circumstances they may face, whatever trials they go through, whatever afflictions they suffer, whatever things you withhold in wisdom and love, whatever things you give that fall apart, you remain unchanging and the same and the eternal source of our joy. Oh, let us trust in you so we can taste it and declare that you are good. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.